Well, as I mentioned in the announcements this morning, we are going to be having a short informational meeting after the service that we hope that you'll be able to stick around for. And, and the reason why we have this is because the elders think it is very important to be open with you, to communicate with you, to, to share where we are as a church and where we hope to go as a church. We want to communicate these things to you and we want to have an opportunity for you to communicate back to us because there are a lot of things that are going to be going on here at First Presbyterian Church in 2011. And one of the things that we have coming up on the horizon in the near future, in the month of February, is going to be elder and deacon nominations. Those of you who are members here at First Presbyterian Church are going to have the opportunity to nominate men to fill these two offices of elder and deacon. And the Bible has a lot to say about these two offices. So, we're going to take a little break from a, from a normal going straight through a book of the Bible type of sermon series. And I want to take this week and next to explore those two topics. This week we're going to explore what the Bible has to say about elders. And next week we're going to explore what the Bible has to say about deacons. And I would suggest to you that this is a remarkably practical topic. Whether or not you ever become an elder or deacon. And the reason why is because it is almost never the case in the local church that the congregation itself rises to a higher spiritual point than her officers. We are almost never going to be more spiritually healthy than the ones who are in leadership over us, who are the elders of the church. So it is important as we consider elder nominations coming up here in the month of February that we consider what the Bible has to say about that and that we nominate men who are called and who are qualified to fill that office for us because the spiritual health of First Presbyterian Church in so many ways depends upon it. And so it's important that we make wise and careful biblical decisions about who we're nominating because our own growth and grace is at stake in all of this. So with all of that in view, let's take a moment to read the passages that we're going to look at this morning. You have an insert in your bulletin. We're going to look at a few different passages of Scripture. And just to keep you from having to flip-flop all over the Bible, we have those passages printed out for you in your worship guide. So the first passage I want to read to you comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through Paul says this to his protege, Timothy. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Thus far, God's Word. And now let's take a look at what Paul has to say to Titus in Titus chapter 1. Beginning in verse 5, he says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put 
what remain into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then in the next few verses that you read here, you see a lot of what Paul has just said in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The same qualifications. But then when you get down to verse 9, I want you to take a look at verse 9 with me. This is what he says. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now let's look at what Paul has to say to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up and love. And finally, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul in Acts chapter 20 is speaking directly to the elders in the church of Ephesus. And I want you to see here what he has to say to them in particular about the calling that God has placed upon their lives. In verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. Amen. This is God's Word to us this morning. May He write the truth and the grace of that Word upon all of our hearts. My bet, if I were a betting man, is that an entire tropical rainforest has died for the books that have been written about how to create a healthy church. And I have a bunch of those books. Some of those books are pieces of junk and some of them are extremely helpful. There are all sorts of books on this. There are books on how to create an effective church, how to create a user-friendly church, how to grow a church, how to start a church, how to revitalize a church, how to make your church purpose-driven, and how to do all sorts of different things to create a healthy church. And as I was looking back upon the missions conference, I was thinking about how Scott Lowe and I one of the church planters that we support out in Fort Collins, Colorado, we were having uh, Buffalo Wild Wings one of the nights after the times that we had together. We were there until about midnight. We were just talking about our churches and talking about what's going on out in Fort Collins and here in Biloxi and some of the differences and similarities there. And then we were reminiscing about how we were in seminary together. And we used to talk about all of these fascinating theological ivory tower abstractions. And now we sit across the table eating buffalo wings and we're talking about just trying to keep our churches from falling to pieces. And we're talking about how we can create healthy churches, vibrant churches, to see our churches grow and become places where the people are coming and they're actually being nourished. They're growing in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And one of the many things that we agreed upon as we were sitting there talking 
was the necessity of having godly, biblical, faithful, qualified men in the office of elder. We need good leaders in the church, men and women alike, to take the reins and to lead the church and to lead the people in the church towards Jesus Christ. But at the bottom of that all, we need godly, wise, called, and qualified men to be in that office of elder. Because as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, it is just very rare, if it ever happens at all, that our spiritual health is ever going to become more healthy than that of the elders. They are our leaders. They're the people who are called to point us to Jesus Christ. And so we take this very seriously. We take it seriously at First Presbyterian Church because, get ready for this, we are a Presbyterian church. The Greek word for elder is presbuteros or presbuteri, where you are maybe drawing the connection to the word Presbyterian. That tells you that this church is overseen by a plurality, by multiple elders who are entrusted with the spiritual care and oversight of the church. And so we highly value that because the Bible highly values that. Because that is the way that God has organized His church, the way in which He's structured it. And so when you look at 1 Timothy 3 and you look at Titus chapter 1, those passages that we just read, you discover that... Paul lays out a few very important things and a very, uh, very important characteristics that should be there in elders and be there in people who are overseeing the church. And immediately the thing that sticks out to me and hopefully stuck out to you as we read these, this passage is that these men are to be men of godly character. They're to be gospel men. They're to be holy men. They're to be men who are walking with Jesus Christ and have a vibrant relationship with Him. And so in the coming month, when you think about who you're going to nominate for the office of elder, you need to be asking, is this a godly man? Do I see Jesus Christ in this man? Does the aroma of Christ radiate from this man? If so, that's the kind of man you want to nominate as an elder. You're not nominating a man for the city council, or for the board of directors. That's not what you're doing when you nominate an elder. In fact, the very things that may make a man successful in the world and may get a person a seat at the table in the positions of power in society may be the very things that disqualify him from becoming an elder. You're looking for a whole set of traits that's completely different because Elders are men who are overflowing with Christ and with the gospel in their lives. And thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us to our own devices to figure out what a Christ-like elder looks like. He lays this out for us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. And I want to look specifically at what he has to say in 1 Timothy 3 because he gives a lot of qualifications here. Just take a look at some of the things that Paul lays out for us. First of all, he says that elders are to be men who desire the task. They have to aspire to it. I'll tell you this. Looking back on why I went into ministry, I'm thinking about what that looked like. And do you know why, at least part of the reason why I went into ministry? It's very, very spiritual. Get ready for it. Because I wanted to. How about that? I desired it. I desired to be able to nourish the souls of God's people 
and to reach people who do not know him more than I desire to do anything else in this world. It was a desire that I had, and it was affirmed by others who I believe to be more godly and walking closer to the Lord than myself. But at the end of the day, it's something that I actually desired to do. At the bottom of my toes, I wanted to do that. And elders are the same kind of men. Elders are men who desire to see the health of the church, desire to see men and women and boys and girls in the church grow into maturity in Jesus Christ. They aspire to that. It's something that they desire to do. Here's another thing that Paul lays out. He says that men who are elders are to be men who are above reproach. That does not mean that they are men who no longer sin. If that were the case, there would be no elders. There's no such thing as someone who reaches that state of holiness in a life. But what it does mean is that he is a man who is free from open, blatant, unrepentant, scandalous sin that makes him justifiably susceptible to public criticism. He's a man that is supposed to be above reproach. And then, the third thing we find here is that he is to be the husband of one wife. That ought to be a pretty easy one, right? The husband of one wife. In the day and age in which Paul was writing, polygamy was a little bit of a more significant problem than it is in our own culture, at least for now. It was a problem in that culture. And so the men were to be husbands of one wife. It did not necessarily mean that they had to be married. Jesus Christ, an apostle himself, Jesus Christ, the king and the head of the church, was not married. It's possible that Paul was not married. It's very likely that at the time that John and and James were called, that they were not married as as well. So a person does not have to be married, but if a person is married, he is to be a one-woman man. And a person can be married to one woman yet be introducing a third party into his marriage. They can be introducing another woman into his marriage, but he can also be introducing his work as the thing in which he is also married to. Or his hobbies, the thing in which he is married to as well. Or all sorts of different stuff which introduces a third party into his marriage. And it leads him to not only fail to prioritize his marriage, but to create spiritual adultery. He's to be a one-woman man, the husband of one wife. Then the next thing we see is that an elder is to be sober-minded and self-controlled. That means that he is not an erratic personality where every circumstance that hits his life sends him off into a conniption fit, into the depths of despair, into just wild forms of erratic behavior. Because an elder has to make difficult decisions and has to be engaged in people's life in in a way that soberly brings them to Jesus Christ. So if a man is totally erratic and not self-controlled and given to all sorts of lusts of the flesh, then he's not to be a man who is to be an elder. The next thing we see here is that he is to be respectable. It means that people are going to look at his life and they're going to see a significant measure of integrity there. They're going to see that he's an honest man. A man who wells up with the fruit of the Spirit. Where that, those things are characteristic of his life. Then, Paul says, that an elder is to be hospitable. It means that he loves people, cares for people, 
that He engages with people relationally and seeks to get to know them and get to know their heart and what's going on in their lives and cares for them. He's a person who's going to open up his life and his home and his time to people in the church. He's going to be a hospitable man. The next thing that Paul has to say here is that he needs to be able to teach. And I'm going to get to that a little bit further in a minute, but I want to skip to the next thing. And it says that he's not to be a drunkard. It doesn't mean that he is to abstain from all alcohol altogether, but it does mean that he is not to be addicted to anything, whether it be alcohol or anything else, that would impair his ability to think clearly, to function well, to live a godly, holy, Christ-centered, gospel-focused life. He's not to be a drunkard. Then the next thing we see is that he's to be a non-violent, gentle person, not quarrelsome. It means that he's gentle. It means that he does not let his temper get the best of him. How does he engage with his children? Is he overly punitive, driving them to despise their parents? Does he mistreat his wife? Is he quarrelsome with other people? Does he stir up division? If so, that man is not to be an elder either. The next thing we see here that Paul says is that an elder is not to be a lover of money. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic class is, what your background is, or what your age is. Anybody can be a lover of money. And he says here that elders are not to be people who just live to have more and more and more and who are very, very tight-fisted and whenever they are generous, they do so very reluctantly. There are to be people who are not married to their money married to their financial resources, whether they have great financial resources or not, who build their whole life shooting for that. The next thing we see, and the part where Paul spends the most time spelling out what an elder should be, is that he should be a man who manages his household well. Friends, I want you to listen to this and understand this. We are a family here. We are not isolated individuals. In fact, one of the metaphors that Jesus gives to us in in a way to help us to understand the church is that we are the household of God. That's why we call each other's brothers and sisters here. And the reason why that's so crucial to understand is because if a man cannot manage his household well, if he's not laying down his life for his wife, if he's not seeking to raise his children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord, if there is not some leadership that's taking place in his household, how in the world is he going to be able to lead the household of God? A man who is equipped and called to be an elder is someone who has his household in some semblance of order. The next thing that we see here as well is that a man should not be a recent convert should not be a brand new Christian. I have to tell you this, and if you've been around new Christians, you know this. New Christians are remarkably exciting to be around because they have a great zeal for God. This, this Christianity thing has not grown old to them. The gospel is fresh and new and riveting and it's changed their entire view of themselves and of the world and of God and they long to make Him known to their friends. And yet Paul says that new converts, new Christians are not to be elders. And the reason why 
It's because their faith has not stood the test of time yet. See, faith gets pressed when all sorts of dangers and toils and snares come our way. It's tested to see whether or not it's genuine at that point. That's true for an elder or anybody else for that matter. And so because faith needs some time to grow and the the person needs to grow into a place of maturity in order to lead the church to maturity, that's why a new Christian should not be an elder. And then the final thing here that Paul lays out is that he is to be well thought of by outsiders. That's a key theme in what Paul has to say about elders and even about Christians. It's that people who can care less about the Bible, care less about Jesus Christ, and could care less about the Gospel, are people who are going to look at this man and they're going to say, he is a good man. He is a man that is full of things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Those things characterize him. I don't have massive things to say to slander his name because he's above reproach in that way. Even unbelievers, people who would never set foot in the church, can say that about that man. And my friends... There you have it. That's what holiness looks like. That's what God is looking for in an elder. Piece of cake, isn't it? I think an elder is a man who looks at these things and the very first thing that comes into his mind is that I have no business ever being an elder. Ever. Because in one way or another, all of these things are things that I fail at regularly. They're there in my life. In one fashion or another, I am a failure in all of these things that Paul has laid out. And I'll tell you what, the reason why I think that a man who thinks in that way, who sees these things and questions whether or not he has the qualifications to be an elder might actually be qualified to be an elder is because he knows specifically how he is a sinner. He doesn't just see himself as a sinner in the abstract. He can look to specific pinpointed areas of his life and say, I have failed my Lord in one way or another in these different areas. He knows that he is a sinner yet he doesn't let that sin take him straight into the pit of despair and wallow in that. He takes that sin and he brings it straight to the foot of the cross, straight to Jesus Christ, so that he'll be renewed in the grace that's available to him in the Gospel. And he stands not upon his record, but upon the record of Jesus Christ. And he knows that where sin has abounded, grace abounds even more, and that grace begins to well up in his life to where his life begins to more and more look like the qualifications that Paul has laid out there. And friends, I need to mention this to you as well. These are characteristics that should not only be alive in people who would become elders. These are characteristics that ought to be alive in every single Christian, no matter who you are or how old you are or what your background is. 
These are characteristics that ought to be alive in every Christian, especially in Christian men. I long to see First Presbyterian Church at some point be a place where every single Christian man in this congregation is qualified to be an elder. That might seem hopelessly naive for you to hear. But I'll tell you what, I don't know of one minister anywhere preaching the gospel who desires anything less for his church. That these things would be characteristic of men in particular and people in general in the congregation because we want to see these men growing in holiness and growing in grace to such a degree that these things normally come out of their lives because these are the things that spill out of a person's life who loves Jesus Christ and builds his life upon him. And the reason why this is so important, the reason why this is so important for you practically, whether or not you ever become an elder, is because these men are the men who are called to lead you to Jesus. That's what they're called to do. See, what you and I need more than anything else that we need in the world is to have the gospel so deeply ingrained into the pores of our life that as we go and engage our families and our friends and engage the world, the aroma of Christ is spilling out of our lives. That's what we need. And we want to be a church where the stuff of Jesus is central here in us as individuals and us as a body together. And in order for that to happen, we need leaders. In particular, we need qualified and called men who treasure Jesus Christ more than any other treasure that they have in life. See, an elder is not fundamentally someone who goes to meetings once a month to approve minutes and set the budget and decide whether we're going to have chicken or beef at the monthly potluck. That's not fundamentally what an elder does. Those things are important, but that is remarkably secondary and tertiary to what an elder fundamentally does. When you look at what Paul has to say in, uh, to Titus, in Titus chapter 1, and then you look at Ephesians chapter 4 and Acts chapter 20, we find that fundamentally what an elder is to do is to shepherd the flock of God, to shepherd the church, to pastor the people in the church, to care for the souls of the people in the church to build up the body of Christ, to equip us for the works of ministry, to give instruction in sound doctrine and correct false teachings. That's what an elder does. And friends, when you see what the job of an elder is, it should tell you something about yourself and about God's priority for your life. Because when I see what God wants in an elder... It tells me as just Joe Schmo individual Christian that God loves me and cares for me and he wants me to grow so I'm not acting like this immature baby who has to drink milk when I'm 35 or 45 or 75 or 100 years old to where I'm actually growing in some sense of maturity to where Jesus Christ is blazing at the center of my life. Because that's where my joy is going to be found and that's where my hope is going to be found. And that's where God is going to be glorified. That's how much Jesus loves you and how much He cares for your soul. 
any parent knows this. Every parent knows, every good parent knows, that he or she wants to work for the growth and maturity and the welfare of their child. Rebecca and I are wrestling hard right now with what to do for Sarah next year when she goes off to kindergarten. We care for her. We try to be careful about what it is that she eats and how much television she watches. And we try to stay engaged with her and read to her and pray to her and do what we can to raise her to love Jesus Christ. And we fail at it all the time miserably. But at the bottom of it all, at least we try to have her best interests in mind so that she'll grow up to be a young lady and a woman who treasures Christ and who lives a holy and mature life centered on the gospel. Good parents do that. Good parents don't feed their children a steady diet of soda and potato chips and let them watch TV and play video games all day long. That's not what they do. They're checked in. And they do that because they want their little boy and their little girl to be a grown-up someday. To where they can have maturity and they're not this 20 or 30 or 40-year-old adult body with all of the maturity of a 6th grader. No offense to any of you if you are sixth graders over there. The point is we grow into manhood and into womanhood in the faith. That's exactly what Paul is saying in the Ephesians passage. He says he wants all of us to attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to grow to be adults in the faith, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? so that we may no longer be children. Our faith is to be childlike, but it's not to be childish. And elders are the ones who are to lead us in that direction, to lead us to maturity. He does it. God does that by establishing recognized, ordained leadership in the church to bring the Word of God to bear upon the people of God, to do so in a life-on-life kind of way where they're helping people to see, they're helping you and I to see our complete helplessness and hopelessness apart from Jesus Christ, and they're getting us to build our life upon Him, to delight ourselves in Him. These are men who are called to train people in practical, biblical, gospel-centered Christianity so that we would learn how to reflect Christ in all the ordinary aspects of our life. He calls these men to lead the church in reaching people who do not yet know the gospel with the gospel. He calls these men to protect the church from lies, from aberrations of the faith, from false gospels that crop up all over the place. I have to tell you, just looking back on the history of First Presbyterian Church, we were established in 1891, and you have no idea the junk that has come through the church in that amount of time. And I'm thankful that somewhere down the line, people who I have never even heard of and don't even know, who were elders in this church at some point in time, protected her from all of that garbage. That is why we can stand here today and you can know that you're hearing the gospel and that this church is built upon the gospel because there were elders 10, 20, 50, 70 years ago who protected the church from that kind of harm. 
And in 10, 20, 30, and 70 years from now, there's going to be all kinds of mumbo-jumbo that crops up that the elders are going to have to protect the church from. And that's why you want godly men whose lives are built upon the Word of Christ and upon the Gospel. And that's why elders have to be able to teach. I'm going back to that now. That thing that... Timothy, or that Paul mentioned to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and that he also mentions in Titus, that men who are elders ought to be able to teach, which means that they're able to take the Word of God, that they know it well enough, to where they can take it to you and be able to bring it to bear in some practical way in your life so that you will understand it and live it out. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be great preachers or public speakers or great behind the pulpit or lectern, great Sunday school teachers even. That's desirable, but that's not absolutely essential. What is essential is that they're able to bring that word to the people of God and to Christians in individual ways and in smaller groups. And believe it or not, that is not all the responsibility of the pastor. That is not all my responsibility. If the pastor was responsible for all of those things exclusively, we would have a very nicely shepherded church of about 15 to 20 people in it. We'd have more people in the church, but they wouldn't be getting shepherded. Maybe 10 or 12, 15 people at the max. And you'd have one seriously burnt out pastor. See, that's why Paul calls Titus to set up elders using the plural form, because we need these men to engage in the lives of people in a plural way, who are diligent about caring for people. See, elders are men who are going to come alongside you and they're going to equip you. They're going to equip you to minister to one another. One of the things that is true about us being the household of God and brothers and sisters is that we are also priests, which means that we can minister to one another. It means that you, individual Christian, have the privilege and responsibility of providing care to that person sitting next to you, to that person sitting two pews in front of you and three pews behind you. And you can do that, but you need to be equipped to do that. And it's the responsibility of the elders to do that, to help you to become a follower of Christ who is helping other followers of Christ grow into maturity in Him. That's what elders do. That's why they are here. Let me just say one more thing, and then I'll be done. I've had some bad experiences with elders in my long and distinguished ministry of five years. I was working with a church where most of the elders in that church didn't even attend the church they were called to oversee. It was the most colossal act of negligence that you could even possibly begin to imagine in a church that supposedly preached the gospel. And you can just imagine the lack of accountability and pastoral care that was there. It's important that we do this right. I've had some bad experiences, but I've also had some really amazing, wonderful experiences with elders that showed me exactly why God has established His church in this way. When Rebecca and I were about to get married, we had a mentally deranged family member of ours who was seeking to bust up our wedding, was bound and determined to see that that happened. 
he wrote a 16-page single-spaced letter with footnotes explaining why we should not get married. He was threatening to sue the church where we got married at, and he was saying that he was going to come into the wedding ceremony and bust it up. So, about a week before the wedding, we're trying to figure out what in the world we're going to do about this. We were thinking we need to move the wedding date a day earlier and move it to a different location. We seriously considered that and almost did it. Well, I took this issue wisely to the person who was marrying us, the person who was performing the wedding, who also happened to be one of Rebecca and my professors at the seminary. And this was something that he thought was beyond his capability to handle on his own. So what he did is he took it to the elders. We all went to the elders. And when we first went to the elders, we explained to them our predicament. And they just listened to us. They didn't immediately step in with counsel and advice and tell us what to do and say what they were going to do. They just listened to us. They listened to our heart. And when they listened to us, they wept for us. Because when you get married, it's supposed to be the highlight of your life, the happiest moment of your life up to that point. And they wept for us because they knew the pain that we were going through and the stress that this was causing in our lives. And then they prayed for us. They sought the Lord. And they sought His will and direction because they realized that this was something beyond their own native strength to be able to handle. And then they brought the truth and the grace of the Gospel to us. They reminded us of the sovereignty of God, not by just spilling out some catechism question, but to specifically bringing it to bear upon our lives and our specific situation. And then they fought for us. They stepped up to the plate and they sacrificed for us and they gave their all to protect us. And let me tell you how they did it. We got married at the same time and in the same place as we were supposed to, and nothing ended up happening. Praise God for that. But afterwards, we were at the reception, and there were three men dressed in suits. And Rebecca and I turned to each other, and we didn't know who these people were. One of the guys comes up to me, and he says, I just wanted to let you know, we're from the Jackson, Mississippi Police Department, and we're just here to let you know that everything's going to be okay. And they were told to watch out for any middle-aged guy coming in to our wedding unaccompanied by anybody else. Well, there's this one couple that we invited to come to the wedding, and they're traveling from the parking lot across the street. You're already laughing already. You know the story. (laughs) They're walking across the street, and one of them forgot something in the car. And so the wife comes on in, the the husband goes back to the car to get it, he's coming back across the street, and three men just converge on him so fast he had no idea what was coming. Those police officers protected us. But they protected us because the elders fought for us. They laid down their lives for us. We were nobodies in this church. 
And they gave themselves for us because they cared for the souls of their people. They brought Christ to us. They defended us. They prayed for us. They wept for us. They listened to us. And friends, you need that. You need that more than you can ever begin to imagine that you need that. Godly, called, qualified men who are going to take the care of the church seriously. And they're going to give over their lives for that. That's who I want you to nominate for elder. Because that's who God wants you to nominate to be an elder in this church. Let's take a moment now to pray that that would happen. Let's bow our hearts before him. Father, these passages that we have read show us our great need because we are great sinners, wandering sheep, clueless as can be, having no idea where we should go or what we should do, distracted by all sorts of things all the time. And we need Your help. And we need Your help personally, embodied, Your Holy Spirit working through men who are going to take the task of shepherding the church and shepherding us as individuals seriously, who are going to be competent and qualified to do so. And we pray that You would raise up such men in this church, not only in the month of February, but in years and years and years to come, so that this place would be a vibrant place, centered on the Gospel, centered on reaching people with it, centered on growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Please do that. We beg You. We need You to do this for our own health and for the sake of those who do not yet know You and all for the sake of Your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.